0: Welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast that celebrates female creativity and storytelling. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and today I'm joined by the Pennsylvania-based writer, Kylie Reid, to discuss Kylie's dazzling debut novel, Such a Fun Age, which is already a New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller. Such a Fun Age explores the relationship between Amira, a babysitter in her 20s, and her employer, Alex, a blogger and social media entrepreneur. Every week, Amira looks after Alex's daughter, Briar, and sometimes her baby sister, Catherine. When Amira is accused of kidnapping three year old Briar on a late night trip to the grocery store, and her confrontation with the security guard is filmed, A chain of events are set in motion that cause Alex to become increasingly obsessed with her babysitter and that eventually force Amira to decide just who she is and what she wants out of life. I think Such a Fun Age is an extraordinary book and it explores themes of motherhood, female friendship, race and class in such a fresh, original style. It's a book that is bound to stay with you. I still find myself thinking about Amira and Alex weeks after finishing the book. And it also made me reflect on my own white privilege and the damaging consequences of unconscious, as well as conscious, racism. I had such a wonderful time chatting to Kylie about her brilliant book and her unforgettable characters let's get started with the show hello Kylie thank you so much for being on tea and tattle today thank you for having me I absolutely loved such a fun age so I've been really looking forward to this chat thank you it makes me very (laughs) very happy here thank you so much Well, I read that you were, in fact, a nanny yourself for quite a few years. And I wondered if you'd tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind Such a Fun Age and whether your time as a nanny sort of influenced you at all in writing the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was a nanny for about six years in my 20s. And so I think that time and the experience of working in someone else's house and the you know the emotions that you have towards a family and towards a child, all of those things were definitely an inspiration, but this is still a complete work of fiction. I'm not one to write about myself so much, but the whole world of domestic labor and what it feels like to go to work in someone else's house was really inspiring to me. And children are also such a wonderful source of inspiration. So I was absolutely inspired by my time as a nanny.
0: Yes, well, I absolutely love Briar and you wrote her so well. I think it's really hard to write children well actually. They can come over yeah. as very twee, but she's just got this amazing personality that leaps off the page. I don't always like reading about children in children adult are very books, but She just yeah. Yeah, she steals the show. She's amazing.
1: Oh good. I I think I have a bit of an allergic reaction to overly precious and precocious children in literature and film. As soon as they seem like they're performing at all for anyone else, I think something is a bit missing. And so with Briar, my biggest goal was to just let her be a child and awkward and very odd sometimes. And she's also a bit of a panicky toddler.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I know in my time as a nanny, I was shocked at how adult like, you know, even three year olds were and how much intelligence and humor they had and, and all the little, the little idiosyncrasies that make them who they are. And so that definitely all went into Briar.
0: Oh, yeah, it really did. I mean, I've actually been a nanny myself and I used to be a a primary school teacher. Oh, so so you know. Yes. (laughs) I do. I do know. And she's so real in this book. You just write her so believably. And I really loved that. But like I said, I adored the book. I can't wait to get into so much about it with you. But just to sort of start off and set the scene, would you mind reading an extract from it?
1: Absolutely. All right. Alex walked upstairs into the kitchen. Briar looked up from her drawing and said, "'Mama, Mama, this is not a scary ghost, okay?' Alex put her purse on the counter and realized that the room had turned very sweet and warm. That morning, she had put out pumpkins and gourds at the center of the table and hung fall leaves collected from the backyard over the windows that looked out onto the street. Briar colored a picture of a very friendly ghost next to a plate of cucumbers, garbanzo beans, and plain pasta." On the fridge were new art projects, a googly eyed witch made out of felt, and a purple paper that read Boo. The letters were colored in so nicely on the side that it was clear that Amira had helped Briar complete it. Alex took off a drapey cardigan sweater, kissed Briar's cheek, and received Catherine from Amira, who was already holding the baby up. You guys have a good day? Yeah, Amira picked at the dried food on the knee of her jeans. I think we did pretty good, huh? Bee? Briar held up a crayon and said, you do it. Amira sat down next to her. I do what now? Let's say, please, Bri, Alex said. Amira, she added, do you drink wine? Amira carefully accepted a crayon from Briar. She blinked and said, I mean, yeah. Alex took two glasses from the cupboard and thought, yeah, you do. She sat down and with the bottle of wine in between her legs, she somehow managed to uncork the bottle while holding Catherine. When Catherine looked up at her, Alex said, hi, did you miss me or what? Alex told Amira that she could take the wine glass into the bathroom with Briar. that she did it all the time. She hadn't eaten since lunch. She would lost five pounds since her very loving and supportive intervention, and as she sipped her glass of wine cleaned up the toys from the kitchen table, and listened to Amira give Briar a quick bath, she sensed those lax and wonderful feelings of decorum leaving her body. She lit two candles on the kitchen counter. She turned on a playlist with Fleetwood Mac and Tracy Chapman. And as she turned off the bright kitchen lights and left the chandelier blushing over the table, Alex recognized that she was very much courting her babysitter. But the evening reminded her of Fridays with Rachel, Jody, and Tamara. She hadn't poured a glass of wine for another woman in months. Amira emerged with a few picture books beneath her arm, a glass half full, and briar in tow, changed into her pajamas and wrapped in her tattered white blanket. Amira stopped at the kitchen counter and took another sip of her wine. This is really good, she said. I like it too. From the table, Alex held up her glass and looked at the color are you a wine person or no? I mean, I like it, Amira said. She set her glass down at the other end of the table, then took the books from underneath her arm and set those down too. But I'm used to drinking, like, boxed wine, so yeah, I'm no connoisseur. There were moments like this that Alex tried to breeze over, but they got stuck somewhere between her heart and her ears. She knew Amira had gone to college, she knew Amira had majored in English, but sometimes... After seeing her paused songs like with titles like Dope Bitch and Y'all Already Know, and then hearing her use words like connoisseur, Alex was filled with feelings that went from confused and highly impressed to low and guilty in response to the first reaction. There was no reason for Amira to be unfamiliar with this word, and there was no reason for Alex to be impressed. Alex completely knew these things, but only when she reminded herself to stop thinking them in the
0: first place. Oh, thank you. That was wonderful. I remember that section. And yeah, just really loved that passage. I love the way that you write about a kind of, I don't, not girl crush, because Alex isn't a girl anymore. You know, she's a woman and so is Amira. Um, You really write about a kind of woman crush. Alex is Amira's employer. But she develops almost a sort of obsessional interest in Amira and wants to sort of be her friend, but also really wants Amira to kind of notice and look up to and respect her. Mm -hmm. Why does Alex become so fascinated with Amira?
1: Oh, I think there's a lot of things going on, and I also don't think that you're quite wrong calling it a girl crush because I do think there's like an adolescent uh, air to it as well uh, when yeah. you're little and discover something for the first time and become quite interested in it. Um, I think there's so many things going on. Alex, I think her loneliness really drives her actions especially in the beginning of the book. She's just relocated to Philadelphia. She doesn't have her girlfriends and her phone blowing up all the time. And suddenly she's placed into the city that she doesn't really see as, as important as she did with New York. And so what happens is she meets you know, her husband's friends and she doesn't really think that they're uh, very modern and cool. And Amira is a version of modern and cool that she hasn't seen before. And so I think that she becomes infatuated in a very interesting way. And I think we all do that to a certain extent. I know that, you know, if I discover a new artist or author, I will kind of go down the rabbit hole and want to see and read everything they've ever done. But the biggest difference here is uh, Alex is her employer. And I think Mm -hmm. that her want for female friendship and a project and a mentorship goes past healthy boundaries because she's paying Amira to be there. And so like in this scene, you know, she asks Amira to do things all the time because that's her job. She says, you know, can you pick Briar up? Can you change Catherine? And then in this scene, she says, basically, you know, do you want to have a glass of wine, which almost translates into, do you want to be my friend for a second? And I think Amira is so used to saying no. And she's also so vulnerable financially. uh, She feels like she has to, to sit there and, and see what this is about.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that that boundary that Alex crosses a lot is explored so interestingly. Um, Alex seems to spend a lot of the time building up some kind of fantasy about who she is Mm -hmm. and also about how Amira fits into that. And Alex does recognize differences between the women. She thinks about their difference in race a lot, but she really seems... Quite ambivalent to Amira's sort of financial situation, the fact that, you know, this is a transactional relationship as well and that she is Amira's employer, but she doesn't know that Amira can't even really afford health care, mm-hmm. for instance, or what her life is really like. Is this just real selfishness on Alex's part? Why does she find it so hard to sort of connect to Amira in a less selfish way? I think there's a lot of things going on. Uh, Alex
1: is very used to having girlfriends within the same class solidarity that she's in. And she has black friends. She has friends uh, who have all different types of jobs, but they really share a similar income bracket. And so I think that they're used to talking about money in a very specific way or probably more specific to not talking about money in certain terms. And Amira is a pretty private person. Uh, she's not really sharing anything with Alex that she feels like she doesn't need to know, and and you know she's her employer. The things that she doesn't need to know are are many. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think that Alex is pretty much guided by the things that she sees Amira wearing or her friend Zara. She has all of these teeny tiny little parts of her life that she tries to draw information out of, and mm-hmm. those teeny tiny parts. You know, Amira would never say, I have trouble paying my rent, or I need to go to the doctor. Um, I don't know if I were Amira, if I would trust Alex with that information, um, no. especially as they're still getting to know each other. So I think Alex is a bit blinded by her own loneliness and thinking, well, if I can you know, get this person to have a glass of wine with me and she can know that I love Toni Morrison, then she'll want to be my friend (laughs) rather than, you know, Amira's her own person who's struggling at this point, this pivotal point in her twenties. And she probably isn't really thinking about me (laughs) so much as much as I'm thinking about her.
0: No, exactly. And I mean, I guess what's surprising in the book too is how little Alex uses Briar to try Mm. to connect with Amira, which you think in many ways would be the most likely way for the two women to really come together because they both obviously love and care about Briar in the end. But you explore motherhood in such an interesting way in the book. And Alex does spend a lot of time... Thinking about what Amira might be thinking about her and how she appears to mm-hmm. Amira. But what's kind of ironic is that when Amira does think about Alex with judgment, it really tends to be a lot more around how she interacts with Briar and how she is mm-hmm. as a mother, which Alex never really seems to think about. And I thought that pointed as well to some of these sort of awkward dynamics that can come up in childcare arrangements. Amira in the book is often much more switched into Briar than Alex Mm -hmm. is. And I wanted to ask you about that, why you sort of chose to write it that way. Why is Alex so oblivious to her daughter? And she sort of can appreciate everything about Amira, but not always how great Amira really is with her own child.
1: Right, right. Um, There were so many numbers from prices of things to wages to uh, the number of hours that Amira spends with Briar that were very, very carefully picked for reasons such as this. So Amira works 21 hours a week with Briar, which many people would consider to be, you're a nanny, but for Alex who has friends who have full-time nannies who are there 40 to 50 hours a week, she doesn't really see Amira as like this full-time nanny. She still sees her as this babysitter who comes in and can take care of her child, but she isn't, you know, this uh, full-time domestic care person that she needs to take care of. And so I think that it puts both Amira and Alex in an interesting situation because on one end, you know, I don't think that You know, I don't think you need to be a mother to have comments on someone else's mothering. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, Amir is only there for 21 hours a week. You know, and of course, Briar is always very excited to see her. So it's kind of, you know, she's, you know, in a position where she can say, oh, we'll just do it like this. But she doesn't know what it's like to be a mother every single day of the week, especially when you're very lonely. And so for Alex, she's saying, oh, this person's judging me because... She, you know, only has a short amount of time. And I think that Alex, like a lot of women in situations like hers, which is a victim of pretty much late capitalism, kind of see herself as, well, if Amira thinks I'm a good person, then I must be a good person. And so I need her to think that. And so I think her desperation for Amira to think that she's a good mother rings a little bit higher than than Amira's the other way around.
0: Mm -hmm. You've mentioned how lonely Alex is in the book, and I thought you you write about her loneliness so well too, because it's what makes a lot of her actions believable, Mm -hmm. um, is you really do feel she's struggling to find her way, um, both in life and also in her new home in Philadelphia. Alex's loneliness is also sort of juxtaposed with the importance of female friendship and female bonding Mm -hmm. in the book. And you write about two quite different sets of female uh, friendship groups, both Amira's friendship group and Alex's friendship group that she had to leave behind in New York. Both women really rely on their female friends to sort of anchor them and to give them some kind of identity Mm -hmm. but they also are sometimes shown to be outside of their group almost looking in um Alex so often thinks about herself and her social interactions in terms of how other people might be perceiving them and her and then Amira is um well she feels she's less successful than a lot of her other female friends and that sometimes makes her feel apart from Mm -hmm. them and to sort of look on them a bit as an outsider and I wondered why was it important to you to both write about female bonds and female friendship but also about the kind of loneliness and sense of isolation that can occur within these bonds
1: right right yes I'll start by saying this I have definitely benefited from three other women who I'm constantly on a group text with. And I've seen what a group of women can do for you in your career and your mental health and just your quality of life. Um, I remember the first time I applied to graduate school, one of my girlfriends helped me format my resume. Another tutored me in math so I could take the GRE and another wrote me a recommendation letter. And I still got into zero schools that year. And they were so supportive and just said, okay, you try again. And that kind of friendship and help is just so wonderful. And so I've definitely benefited from that. And they were just as supportive when I didn't get in as when I as when I did. And so I think I was definitely inspired by friendships in that way. But I also wanted to accomplish a lot with Alex and Amira's friendship groups. Uh, the first thing was, I just wanted to make it so clear why these women gravitated towards each other from their commonalities to how they make fun of each other. Um, I wanted them to just be so loyal and wonderful to each other, but also very human and offer terrible advice to each (laughs) other because that is just how humans can be sometimes. Um, But another thing I wanted to accomplish within the two groups, and I'm sure you can see that there's mirroring character types within each Um, I love exploring types and stereotypes and kind of twisting and bending them as well. I really wanted to show how class solidarity can either hold friendships together or kind of tear them apart. And I think Amira is a really good example of that. Um, I feel that there's this period in your 20s, especially for women, when suddenly there are friends who jump into higher paying jobs and suddenly friends are getting married and you're thinking, okay, wait, how am I supposed to afford this bridesmaid's dress, this trip to Mexico, oh, yeah. like, how is everything? That. Else. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's hard. Um, I think that that goes for a lot of people. And so Amira really finds herself in that position where she's saying, wait a second, how did I miss this transition? And what did I do wrong to not be there? And she definitely puts all the focus on herself rather than the fact that, you know, Shawnee's father got her an internship or Zara's always had, this dream that she wants to be a nurse, she doesn't have these things that her friends have. Uh, and so I wanted to show how, you know, Zara can be there for her in little ways by covering her coat check fee, but also she does get slack from Josefa who kind of gets annoyed when Zara helps her out. Um, I think that money can come in the way of friendships very easily and also dictate who we side with and who we don't side with. And, I also wanted to show how friends can work as social capital and another method of wealth that has nothing to do with income. Uh, Alex meets Jodi and the rest of the women because she's at Breyer's uh, checkup and she meets Jodi at that doctor's office. Uh, That's probably an office that Amira would never be able to go to and so just from that connection and having wonderful healthcare as everyone should have alex suddenly has access to these women and their friendship but also their you know social wealth and you know at one point she gets a job offer from one of her friends she gets a hookup through you know meeting people through another one of her friends to the hillary clinton campaign and there's all of these career Opportunities that she gets through her friends, and those are not the same opportunities that Amira is getting. And so, I think on a surface level, I love female friendships because I've benefited from them so much. But it was also really an opportunity to show how money works in friendship, and you know, sometimes it it can be something to help people out, and sometimes it can really tear people apart.
0: Yeah, well, and this idea of sort of social capital, in a way, I find really interesting too, in terms of how. Alex's group of female friends also seemed to strengthen her own social status in a way mm-hmm. um, and how she perceived herself I mean Alex seems to me someone who really wanted to reinvent herself I mean she even changed how she pronounced mm-hmm. her name it's like uh, Alex yes. or <laughs> yeah. something um and it's like she's got this sort of fantasy version of herself that she wants to be as this sort of really liberal woman who has it all and who has these great friends and who has friends of all different races. She's absolutely terrified in the book as being perceived as racist. Mm-hmm. And she spends time fantasizing about kind of who she wants to be and who she wants to to appear to be to others. I mean, specifically Amira. She thinks about Amira finding out that Alex has this close black female friend, for instance, and what Amira would you know, think of that, how impressed Amira might be by that. And I wondered what were some of the wider issues regarding things like race and class and privilege that, that you wanted to address through the narrower lens of both Amira and Alex's interactions with each other but also this idea of Alex trying to gain social status from those that she's Mm -hmm. mixing with. Um, I have to be honest and say
1: the first priority with anything I write always has to do with the characters. Um, There was a teacher in grad school who always said you can't issues and I'm putting quotes around the word issues. You can't issues your way into a plot. You have to go the other way around. And so I knew I wanted initially a very precarious and awkward relationship between a mother, a babysitter, and a nanny. And from that came so many issues of race, but I think that the only way that you get to those in a really natural way is if you just focus on the characters and their own individual wants and needs. And so mm-hmm. with Amira and Alex, I think that Alex isn't trying to be a liberal person. I think that she thinks that she naturally is and she tries to set herself up to benefit others from the way that she thinks. And so she's a bit blinded. She knows how she feels. She doesn't feel like she has a racist bone in her body and she's just trying to set others up for success with the, you know the things that she has. And I think that she's also encouraged by the other wealthy friends that she has telling her that she's doing the right thing. But in doing mm. that, I think that she doesn't realize that she's treating people as commodities and yeah. using people around her to give her a certain appearance kind of like a conspicuous consumption. And I think that mm. social media is a bit of an obvious place for people to point at her and at others by saying, "Oh, well, you're constantly branding yourself," but I think that we're all constantly branding ourselves from where we live to the sweatshirts we wear to, you know, where we mm-hmm. send our kids to school to where we get married. I think all of those things we're we're constantly using them to say something about ourselves, mm-hmm. and you know, when you buy a t-shirt that says something on it and you're saying something about yourself, that's one thing. But when you're using an actual person to say something about who you are, I think that that gets very exploitative, especially when you're paying that person $16 an hour uh, to love your child. And so I think that that's one end of it. On the other end, Amira is trying to brand herself as well. And she's a bit lost Hmm. and she just wants to be seen and can act like an adult. And she just wants to have the stability that her friends have. And so I think the combination of what they're both trying to achieve kind of comes together in this choreographed train wreck a little bit as (laughs) Alex's uh, tendencies to obsess over things really get the best of her.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's so true that all of the points that this book raises really does just come from the characters and the plot. You give so much depth to the characters, which is, I think, think truly wonderful. And that's what can raise so much discussion around the book. I mean, I've seen comments um, on, on social media, I think about people who like were, are really divided over their opinion of Alex, for instance. And I think that's just you know, amazing to be able to create characters the you know, engenders such discussion yes. and such different opinions I have amongst to admit, people. It's one of my favorite. That must things. feel great. It does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I
1: did hear about an incident in a salon where my friend said she was there and two women and a bunch of women were discussing the book and two women got into an argument over whether Alex was a good or bad person. And it got to the point where there was screaming involved and the salon owner asked them to leave the store and then (laughs) someone shoved the other person on the way out. And so everything, (laughs) excluding the shoving, I mean, it's a dream. It's delicious. that People are, are that divided Uh, because I I I love when novels don't tell me what to think of someone. I love when they let me make up my own mind. And so that was definitely a goal. Um, And I think that, you know, through studying characters, you cannot help but study class and race. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Alex's obsession and girl crushes, I think even the words sound really innocuous. But I do think that fetishizing someone is an extension of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, it's a weird balance to try and maintain an even hand as a writer and just stick with the characters, knowing that you are pointing at these other things that, that go into, you know, deep trauma and pain still for many black Americans.
0: Mm -hmm. But yes, it's interesting. I mean, this discussion on whether Alex was a good or a bad character, I think what you do so well is you show that, you know, people are neither. You know, people are a real mix of things um, and are complicated. They're very
1: complicated. And I think that any energy that I spend figuring out who is a villain and who isn't, takes away from the systems that are in place that allow you know someone like Alex to go to a wonderful doctor and, and doesn't allow Mira to do the same thing. And I hope that it's very clear that I think everyone in this book should be able to go to a really wonderful doctor. Absolutely. Um, and it's not Alex's fault. Um, and so I would much rather spend time as a human, I guess, focusing on those systems rather than the people.
0: Yeah. And I think too, I mean, there's this feeling at the end that in an, in another life, Alex and Amira, um, it could have ended up a bit differently mm-hmm. between them. But that also gives some hope for the future as well. And for Alex, you feel if she could just learn to maybe look in, inwards a little bit more and address issues like her own white privilege, there would be more hope for her development as a character in the future. But in some ways, you know, it's easy to, vilify Alex and you have someone who may be perceived as more of a hero in the book and that's Mm -hmm, Kelly mm -hmm. Amira's boyfriend but you also show him to actually be a complex you know person um as well like we all are and I really enjoyed that aspect of the story as well but I wanted to ask you um What did you really want to explore with Amira's relationship with Kelly and how did that relationship help her to become that confident woman that we see at the end of the book?
1: Yes, Uh, I think the first priority with Kelly is, I mean, it's probably no surprise to you as you've read the book that I love rom-com elements in anything. (laughs) I love watching the beginning of a relationship. And so the biggest thing was to, have the reader date Kelly along with Amira Mm -hmm. and experience him as she experiences him. And so he comes on the scene after their first traumatic meeting. He's very cute and charming. And Amira's 25. She's not trying to get married. She's not saying, is this my forever person? She's saying, you know, this will be fun for the evening. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to give Kelly the full freedom to really nail it and be wonderful and supportive and funny with her, but also really mess up sometimes, because I think it's really interesting to watch Amira wonder, should I ignore this? Should I say something? No, I'm just going to ignore this and and go on, because I think that that's something that we all do when we're first getting to know someone, whether we're dating them or just being friends with them. Uh, On another end, Alex and Kelly have this really difficult Uh, history together. And when I was in graduate school, I worked with one of my professors on this and we talked a lot about how memory works and how memory can be really self-serving and it can make you feel like a victim or it can make you feel really woke or it can make you feel like you always had the best intentions. And so it was important for me to allow Kelly and Alex to tell their sides of the story only from their sides and not give the reader all of their information other than how it happened to them because I think the way it happened to them is the most important thing. And so Kelly has a large amount of black friends and and he's very interested in, you know, black culture and I don't think it's I don't think it's inauthentic. I think he really enjoys those things, but just like Alex, you know, he brands himself with them sometimes. And I think when it comes to fetishization, how it happens most often is you can really love something like Kendra Lamar or a clothing line, but also believe that it says something about you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that that's almost more scary than, than like a, you know, a very overt racist action because Amira has to decide does this person really care about me or am I, you know, part of this whole other thing he's doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that that makes it really hard for Amira.
0: Mm-hmm. But she navigates that relationship and she emerges as someone really strong at the mm-hmm. end of the book, um, which I really loved seeing her growth as a character as well. But I did think it was fascinating how um, there is this particular story that's told in the book that you get to see from both right. Kelly and Alex's side. And they had such different experiences of the same events. And it, to a certain extent, affected both their lives in different ways too, um, this sole event. And I, I loved how you did that though, how um, you really can see that people are, will interpret and experience things in in very different ways.
1: I don't know if you have family and friends who also do that. They retell a story from 20 years ago and you're like, wait, that did not happen like that at (laughs) all. But that's how you've been telling it to yourself for 20 years. And so that's how it, it, you know, that's how it is in your mind. And I think that we have the ability to shape our memories a bit to be to one cope with what happened to us for, for Alex, it was a a traumatic moment in her life, but I think it also, she's trying to protect herself by creating this memory that maybe, you know, didn't happen the way that she thinks it did. And the same for Kelly. Um, And I don't think that that's that rare. I think that we all do that in little ways of of protecting ourselves. But unfortunately when these things come to light, you know, if we aren't honest about the truth, it comes back to hurt us a bit.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. But no, I know, I thought that was just it's so well done okay. but um i mean i could talk to you about your book all day as you can probably tell there's so exactly. much to discuss from it but um at the end of my interviews i always ask my guests to give a cultural recommendation so i'd love to hear about something you've been loving lately whether it's a book or a tv series a podcast yeah. anything really but i'd love to hear about one thing that you've been enjoying
1: Oh man. Um, I, I, I knew this was coming too, and there's so many things that I love. That I'm trying <laughs> to, um, I think that the thing that has stuck with me, especially because it was so long ago that I saw, it was a play that I saw called the flick oh. by Annie Baker. I love when anything, uh, zeroes in on a world and it's a play about three people who work at a movie theater which sounds you know so small but it's so wonderful and funny and so awkward I'm sure from reading my book that you could tell that I love awkward moments and so that play really really stuck with me so I would say the flick by Annie Baker is a wonderful uh, deep dive into a tiny little culture And I would say a much more popular one was Netflix uh, documentary called Cheer, which I loved. I just watched it and I just devoured it. Um, Oh,
0: amazing. Thank you. No, Those are both amazing. And I'll put links to those recommendations in the show notes for this so listeners can check them out. But so Kylie, what's next for you? Are you able to share um, anything related to a future book or events that are coming up for you?
1: Absolutely. So I am working on a future book, but I am quite slow. So give me a few years. But I do have a, a short story coming out next month in Playboy, which I'm very excited about. Oh, amazing. And then, yeah. And then I'll be making my way out to the UK and doing an event at Brixton Library on Monday, the 24th of February. And I'll also be at Waterstones on February twenty sixth, which is a Wednesday. And
0: I'm so excited to be there. Oh, yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, I definitely want to try and make um, some of your UK yes. events. That would be really great. I'd love to see you there. Yes. And um, if listeners would like to keep up with your news and upcoming work, where's best to find you online? I try
1: to keep as updated as I can on Instagram and my handle is
0: at Kylie Reed. Okay, wonderful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But Kylie, it's just been a joy talking to you today. Thank you so much again for coming on Tea and Tattle.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Kylie for her brilliant interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash one two six if you've enjoyed my chat with Kylie then I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or please consider leaving a review of tea and tattle on apple podcasts or stitcher as great reviews help other people to find the show if you'd like to get in touch, then come and find Tea and Tattle on Instagram at Tea and Tattle Podcast, where I share the latest podcast news, sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and things I think Tea and Tattle listeners will love. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep well, be joyful, and stay in touch. <music>